Tonight's only Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 6 and going through to verse 40, and can be found on page 1020 of the Church Bibles. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. <clears throat> when they came to Messiah, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, bypassing Messiah, they came down to Troas. During the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, "'Cross over to Macedonia and help us.' After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelise them. Then, setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course down to Samothraki. The next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony which is a leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for a number of days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river, where we thought there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. But Paul was greatly aggravated and, turning to the Spirit, said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners saw that their, their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jail to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas, who were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud, a loud voice, "'Don't harm yourself, because all of us are here.' Then the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' So they said, "'Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household.' Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house." He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptised. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. 
When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, Release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now are they going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. Then the police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologised to them, and escorting them out, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Abby. Let me introduce myself. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the pastor here at church. Uh, we're in Acts 16, so please keep it open. I'm going to pray for us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, tonight I want to introduce you to these three guys on the screen. I'm assuming that most of you probably even know who these guys are. The first guy is a guy called Jonathan Edwards. Anyone heard of him? A famous preacher during what's called the Great Awakening, where God did amazing things and lots of people came to faith. His most famous sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a fantastic sermon. When he first preached this sermon in his home church, one of those sermons as a preacher, you preach a sermon and you get absolutely zero response. Everyone walked out of church that night completely unaffected by the word of God. A few weeks later, he got an invitation to go and preach at another church, what he called an open door to go and preach in a church he'd never preached at before. So uh, amazingly, Jonathan Edwards picked up the same sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God and preached the same sermon in a different location. Listen to what happened that night. We went over to Enfield where we met a Mr. Edwards who preached the most awakening sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His techniques were unimpressive. He read his whole sermon in an even monotone voice. No shouting, no theatrics, but he had this deep, deep conviction. And before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying throughout the whole church. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I need Jesus Christ. And after Mr. Edwards descended from the pulpit, the most amazing and astonishing power of God was seen that night, and several souls were saved. Hannah Heaton, a farmer's wife, Phyllis Wheatley, the first published black female poet, Sarah and Jeff Osborne, whole families, wealthy men and their slaves, all saved by the power of the gospel that night. It was a night of surprising conversions. Isn't that extraordinary? The same sermon preached, but one night the Spirit of God takes it and does a remarkable work. The next guy is a guy called William Carey. Who's heard of him? He's the guy who took the, the gospel to India. India's most famous missionary. This is his story. He, he grew up in a little, Northampton, a little village in Northamptonshire in the UK. 
I love this phrase. He left the Church of England to follow Christ and became a Baptist. <laughs> he trained as a cobbler. He had a heart for mission. He writes this, My attention to missions was first awakened by the reading of the last voyage of Captain Cook. To many, Cook's journal was a thrilling story of adventure. But to me, it was a revelation of human need. The peoples of the world need Christ. And so he studied language at age 21. He'd mastered Greek, Latin, Hebrew and Italian and was learning Dutch and French. And he made a a leather globe of the world and one day in the quietness of his cobbler's shop, not in an enthusiastic missionary conference, in the quietness of his own little cobbler's shop, he heard the call of God to mission. If it be the duty of all men to believe the gospel, he said, then it be the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all the nations. So here I am, Lord. Send me. Uh, Kerry went to his pastor and told him he'd been called to the mission field. His pastor said this, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, God will do it without your aid or without mine. But Kerry persisted. He spent years surveying the history of missions. He spent years surveying the entire known world as to countries and size and population to religions. He persisted and he persisted and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And as he prayed, the Lord led on his heart Polynesia. And he really believed the Lord was calling to Polynesia. He spent years studying the culture and learning the language. He wanted to go to preach to the lost of that land. And God said, no. Door after door after door was slammed shut in his face. How discouraging is that? And then one day, Dr. Carey met a, a, a doctor called Dr. Thomas, a medical doctor who was going to India. In a conversation one night, he said, why don't you come with me? And so William Carey got on a boat to go to India. And the rest is history. He spent the rest of his life there. He saw thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to Christ through his preaching. He established a Bible college there. On his deathbed, William Carey called out to a missionary friend, Dr. Duff, you've been speaking too much about Dr. Carey. When I'm gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey, but speak about Dr. Carey's God. There's a man who the door was shut. God said no. And then God said go. And he went and he preached and souls were saved. The last man up there is a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anyone heard of him? Famous preacher in England. He was invited to speak to the, the undergraduates and the graduates of Oxford University. And he was terrified preaching to these intellectuals. He writes, I preached to them as I would have preached anywhere else. 
At question time that night, someone criticised my sermon and said it could equally have been delivered to a congregation full of farmers. And Mr. Lloyd-Jones said, I regard undergraduates and graduates of Oxford University as being just common human clay and miserable sinners like everybody else. I held the view that their needs was precisely the same as the farmers. And so I preached exactly the same gospel. There's no greater fallacy than to think that you need a gospel for special types of people. I love these three men. God gives them opportunities and they just preach. And as they preach, God saves souls. Tonight we're going to meet four men, actually. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke himself, the author of Acts. Because if you look at verse 10 of chapter 16, the pronoun changes in verse 10. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia. We. So Paul is on mission with them. You have these men who love Jesus, who are passionate about Jesus. They're eager evangelists. They, they can't shut up about Jesus. They have to learn two things that we have to learn tonight. Here's the first one. God's sovereign control. God's sovereign control. God is in control of where they go and when they go and what they say and who responds. They're not in control, but God is. And I have to say right up front, that's a basic lesson that everybody here needs to learn tonight, isn't it? You are not in control of your life. Where you go, who you will meet, or what you will do, or when you will do it. You like to think you are. I like to think I am. But the reality is you do not know what will happen tomorrow. There's a couple of words in James chapter 4, beautiful words. Uh, the Latin is Dei Valente, DV, God willing. We plot and we plan, but you could say, we should say, if the Lord's wills, then we'll do this and that. That's what Paul learned. So what was Paul's plan in verse 6? Where did he intend to go to preach the gospel? He wanted to go to Asia. Now, you'd think that God would like that. There were lots of people in Asia who had never heard about Jesus. And you think that, that God would be going, wow, good on you, Paul. Off you go. But God says, no. Verse 6, the Holy Spirit prevented him from speaking the message there. So he's not going to go to Asia. So in verse 7, they tried to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. I love that. It's like God says, you're not going to go east, you're not going to go north, you're not going to go south. We don't know what stopped them. The text does not say, does it? We don't know how the Holy Spirit prevented them. It could have been this strong inward feeling. You know, there's no peace about it. It doesn't feel right. You never ever had that, the sleepless nights where your unsettled mind, you're thinking, this is not right. It could have been outward circumstances like an illness or a sickness or physical opposition or transport problem. We, do, we just don't know. But God says, no, you're not going to go there. And God does that sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes God says no to stuff that we really want to do. He does it in church life. He does it in everyday life, doesn't he? 
We planted Church by the Bridge 10 years ago. I wrote a whole document and on a church plant into Shaw School. Even had a name for it. I met with the principal and he gave us a kind of amber light and things were looking good. And then one day he just said, no. I met with the pastor of Christchurch Lavender Bay, a man called Peter Smart. And we chatted and we prayed and looking okay. And suddenly, no. And God does that. God shuts the doors on the relationship that we think that we really, really want or the job that we're desperate for or the house that we really, really want to buy. And suddenly it's slammed shut. Now what I've learned in life is sometimes I keep on pushing a door that God has closed. I like my plans. I like my agendas. I like my wants. I act as I'm in control. And God has taught me the hard way. But in the kindness of God, sometimes he says no to things. So God said no, and then God said go. Verse 9, during the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. So so Paul has this strange vision of the man of Macedonia. Now, I believe that God can do this, you know. I believe that God can speak through visions and dreams. I've woken up in the middle of the night with, with clarity over something or a direction over something. Now, God doesn't promise to do that. That's not, not, not the norm, but God can do it. And he shows Paul these people of Macedonia, and they've never heard the gospel. That was not Paul's plan, but it was God's plan, and God says, go there. And verse 10, after he's seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had opened that door and had called us to evangelize them. I've talked about William Carey. He planned to go to Polynesia, but God took him to Africa, to, to India. Have you heard of the great missionary David Livingstone? He spent most of his life in Africa. What you might not know is that he wanted to go to China. He spent years planning to go to China, but God took him to Africa. The great Baptist missionary Judson, he wanted to go to India, but they wouldn't let him in, so he went on to Burma and spent 40 years in Burma. I've got a friend who thought they were going to go to the Philippines and they, they prayed and they started language learning and God took them to Chile instead. God does that, doesn't he? God decides where we're going to go and when we're going to go. It happened here. God said no to Shaw. God said no to Lavender Bay. And for years and years I've been running over the bridge past this little steeple here in Kiribati and praying for this little church. I knew nothing about it. And it's like God was saying, that's it. That's where you're going to go. I still remember walking through these doors, and you were there, Ian and Linda, and it just felt right. This is where God was going to place us to preach the gospel. And I'm here tonight to say, you do not know God's plans for your life. Please humbly accept that God will open doors and he will close doors. Don't fight him. Don't stick your head in the sand and say, I'm going to do it my way. This is my plan. This is my agenda. It never works. It's the problem I have with churches doing you know, their 10-year plan or their 20-year plan as though we're in control. Uh, it's good to know what direction you're heading and we have responsibilities to use the gifts and the finances God has given us. But who are we to say, 
which congregations will grow and which ministers will flourish. God's in control of that, isn't he? There'll be doors that he slams shut. There'll be doors that he opens. And there'll be ministers that will close down and new ministers will start. And because God's in control, we should never be afraid of change if it's from the hand of God. So God opens doors and God closes doors. Just trust that he's in control. So you've got God's gospelers and they head out to Philippi in verse 12. Do you see that in verse 12? They came to Philippi, a Roman colony, which is the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And in the next few verses, you get this amazing, wonderful picture of God's diverse church. Different people, different conversion stories. I called it God's surprising converts. And Luke just picks three people. Three out of many, I'm assuming, who believed. But he picks three people who are so different. Different backgrounds, different circumstances, different conversion stories, but the same saviour. The first lady here is a lady called Lydia. You meet her in verse 14. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. So, The irony here is that she's from Thyatira. That's a city in Asia. I find that totally ironic. Paul wanted to go to Asia to preach the gospel, but God brings the Asian people to Macedonia, to where God's going to take him. She's a wealthy woman. She's a businesswoman. She deals in purple cloth. She's in the the fashion industry. Uh, She's religious, but she hasn't met Jesus yet. And there's no synagogue in Philippi, so the, uh, the, the worshippers gathered by the river. You know, the, the rivers of Babylon and in exile, they go to the river to meet with God's people. And so Paul goes down there, and verse 14, she's listening. I love that phrase in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was, what was spoken by Paul. You can just imagine it. Paul is there sitting by the river and he, he, he hears them singing about God and he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth, the man who lived, who taught. He died on the cross, you know, and if you trust in him, you, you'll be forgiven for your sins. You, just, you can just see the Lord taking the key to her heart and just slowly unlocking it. And she leaves that day born again. Nothing dramatic, Nothing spectacular. The quiet, simple expanding of the word of God. And God takes that key and opens her heart. Maybe that's your story tonight. Maybe that's your story of how you came to Christ. It was nothing spectacular, nothing dramatic. But week after week after week, you sat under the word of God and by the spirit of God, God took the word of God and just opened your heart so you believed. I've had lots of conversations with people at the door and they come out and they said, oh, I've been born again tonight. And I'm thinking, what? (laughs) That was the worst sermon in the world. But God takes the word of God and he does a miraculous work with it. And he unlocks people's hearts. And if that is your story, if that's how you came to Christ, please don't minimize that or wish that you had some spectacular conversion story. It is spectacular, the Lord opening your heart. And so the first 
member of this church at Philippi as a wealthy, self-employed businesswoman who hears the word of God and her heart is opened and she's baptized. So different from the next woman who's a slave girl, verse 16, a, a young teenage girl who's in double bondage. She's a slave to these harsh taskmasters. To them, she's just a commodity. She's just there to make money. She's in bondage to what's called an evil spirit that gives this woman the, the power to tell fortunes, to predict the future. Can you say, please don't mess with the spiritual realm? Now, evil spirits can and do exist. Now, they're much less common today than in New Testament times or in other parts of the world today, but, but Jesus regularly drove out demons. They, they can exist. And that's this girl in verse 17. She's screaming, these men who, you are, who, are, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are slaves of the Most High God. Day after day after day, verse 18. But Paul, verse 18, was greatly aggravated. The word there means, not, not annoyed, it means he's full of compassion. He's grieved for her. So he drives out the spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. Can you imagine that scene? It says that this woman who is possessed by this evil spirit, but in the name of Jesus Christ, she is set free. And again, I've seen God do that. I've heard people stand here and talk about how they've been in bondage, they've been addicted to, to sex, addicted to drugs and to alcohol or to some eating disorder or to uh, some money, or whatever it is, they're addicted to something and they're in bondage to it and they've met Jesus Christ. And what happens when you meet Jesus? He liberates you, he sets you free, he changes your whole life. They're two very different women with two very different conversion stories. But they're part of the same church, aren't they? And the third person we meet is this middle-class, respectable bloke who's a Roman jailer. So the owners of the slave girl are pretty ticked off because they've lost some money in verse 19. So they chuck Paul and Silas in jail in verse 23. Look at it. After they, they, they inflicted many blows on them, they... They threw them into jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison, the most secure, solitary confinement, and secured their feet in the stocks. Let's stop there. What do you think you would do? What do you think you would do if you were in solitary confinement in... A dirty, smelly, rat-infested, putrid cell where you were, you were naked, you'd been flogged, you'd been beaten, you were chained. What would you be doing in that cell? Grumbling? Whinging? What are these guys doing? Verse 25. They're praying to their God and they're singing hymns to their God. I love that. I wonder what they're praying. God rescue us, probably. But they're also probably praying, Lord, please use us as witnesses to these jailers here. I wonder what they're singing. God is our strength and refuge. Mighty fortress is our God. 
My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Whatever it is, can you imagine being there? If you're not a believer and you hear these two men and they're in the inner cell and they're singing praises to a mighty God, doesn't that impact you? Who does that? Who goes to their death singing songs of praise to their God? People like Andrew Chan. Who knows where they're heading because they love Jesus. Don't underestimate the witness that you can have when you keep on singing to your God and keep on praying to your God in the times of greatest trials. And God answers prayers in verse 25. There's an earthquake. The jail was shaken and the doors are opened and the chains came loose. But this jailer is terrified because the last time this happened, what happened? All the prisoners fled. Remember that? Peter fleeing? Verse 27, he drew his own sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. This is a man who has hit rock bottom. He is desperate. He's fearful. He is terrified. But Paul called out in a loud voice, verse 28, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And then he says in amazing words in verse 30, he says, what must I do to be saved? Let's be clear on that sentence. I, I don't think he is saying there, says, tell us about heaven and hell and how can I avoid hell? Give us a biblical theology of salvation. I don't think he's saying that. The literal reading of verse 30 is, my life's in, a, in, a, in an utter mess. I am utterly desperate. Please help me. So what do you say to the people who say that to you? My life's in a complete and utter mess. I've hit rock bottom. I'm utterly helpless. Please help me. What do you say to them? Do you ever say verse 31? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Trust Jesus. Trust that God loves you and God died for you and God's got you in his hand. Trust him. Believe him. He might not give you what you want, but he'll give you your biggest need, which is salvation. You've got these three totally different people, an elderly, wealthy businesswoman, a young slave girl who's been in bondage to an evil spirit. You've got this middle-class Roman jailer, and they all meet Jesus in totally different ways. But that's the church, isn't it? Everybody in this room tonight will have their own conversion story if you do know Jesus Christ tonight. Some of you will stand up and say, you know, I, I did Christianity Explore and I had lots of questions and, and as I worked through Mark's Gospel, suddenly I met Jesus. I, I'm, I'm more like the Lydia. God unlocked my heart. Some of you will stand up and say, I'm more like the slave girl. I was, I was addicted to something and I was in bondage to it. I, just, I had no freedom and I met Jesus. And it was like liberation. And some of you will be like that, 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 that Philippian jailer who had just hit absolute helplessness and hopelessness and rock bottom. And you meet a Christian and they talk about Jesus. I love that. It's not one size fits all as to how you came to know Christ. And what I also love is the diversity of God's church. An elderly businesswoman, a Roman jailer, and a Greek slave girl. 
Can you imagine church with those people? So different. Can I say I want church by the bridge to be like that? Don't you want church by the bridge to be totally diverse? Young, old, rich, poor, with kids, no kids, never married, widowed, divorced, but we're all one in Christ. You know, when we started Church by the Bridge, we were about 75% singles and about 25% marrieds. And we're known as the Singles Church. I hated that, you know. God's church is for all people, whether you're married or single. And so we prayed. And we prayed that God would be more married people. And God did answer that prayer. And then we prayed for more older people, and God answered that prayer. And we prayed for more kids, and God answered that prayer. If you've been at 945 Church this morning, we've got about 150 kids. We're a diverse family. The problem now is, though, that we're about 75% married and 25% single. I don't want that either. I want this to be a church, whether you're single or whether you're married, you feel part of it, because we're all one in Christ. Don't you long for Church by the Bridge to be a place where somebody who has never ever been to university can walk in and they they love Jesus and they're welcome here. And someone who can't read and write is welcome here. And somebody who's got the best job in the city is also welcome here. Whether you've never been married, whether you're single, whether you're widowed, divorced, or you've got five kids or no kids, you're all welcome here. Whether you're black or white or Asian, who cares? We're all one in Christ, aren't we? Isn't that the, the beauty of the diversity of God's church? I'd hate this to be this homogenous, monochrome church where you, have, you think you have to look a certain way or act a certain way to belong here at Church by the Bridge, wouldn't you? Because that's not God's kingdom, is it? That's not God's church. So God, in his amazing way, he closes doors and he opens doors. He just asks us to obey him. When he says go, you go. When he says no, don't fight it. And he has the most amazing conversion stories. You may know somebody and love somebody who you think is so, so, so beyond salvation. They're not, you know. Pray for them and let God surprise you. So I thought tonight we'd end a bit differently. We'd actually ask you to apply the sermon. We're going to have open encouragement where you can just stand at where you are or come to the front and share stories about how God has opened doors or closed doors in your life. Or share stories about how you came to faith or share stories about surprising conversions that you've seen. That clear, open and closed doors, surprising conversions, or just how you came to faith. I'll give you a moment to think about that, so I'll I'll kick us off with a couple of stories about me. Opening and closing doors. Uh, When I left Bible College 15 years ago, I really thought that God was was laying on my heart a, a passion for the lower socioeconomic areas for the Housing Commission. That was my background. I was a working class kid who had gone to Oxford University. And I wanted to go back and just take the gospel to my roots. And I prayed and I prayed and I applied for jobs. And God says, no, 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 no. 
And where did God take me? To Hampstead, which is like the wealthiest suburb in London. As I went and just preached the gospel. A second story for you of opening and closing door. It's much more personal. When I was 30, I met the girl that I thought that I would marry. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and thought, this is the one, this is the one, this is the one. And God said, no. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. I never thought I would get married, but then God brought Rachel into my life eight years later. You just see God's perfect plan in all of that, can't you? So God does open doors and God does close doors. He just calls us to be obedient. I'll hand over to you. Don't be shy. Just stand up where you are. Share stories of open or closed doors or surprising conversions.